0: morning church thank you pastor charlie for the prayer <clears throat> if you would please take your bibles <clears throat> excuse me and Turn with me to first samuel chapter 17 as we continue our study through the book of first samuel looking ahead not only to the kingdom of david but ultimately as he is a picture and a forerunner and um, of the lineage of which our christ would come title for the message today, if you would like to just kind of hang the thoughts on today, would be The Battle is the Lord's. The Battle is the Lord's. And when we consider where we left off with Pastor Tim in our last study here in 1 Samuel, we read that Saul, who had become a failure, had the Holy Spirit... Leave him. And in verse 23 of chapter 16, it says, So it came about whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. That almost sounds encouraging were it not for the previous fact that the spirit had left him. The only consolation that King Saul, and representative of his kingdom, Israel, the only consolation that they could experience apart from the Spirit of God was just simply to be made to feel better by listening to music. Now, music does have its ability to uh, soothe the savage beast, as I learned from Bugs Bunny cartoons. But it's not what we need. We need the Lord. And as Pastor Scott has been preaching through Zechariah, the importance of having good shepherds is paramount. But we find in chapter 17 that the battle is the Lord's. You may find your condition or your situation similar to those who were living in the land of Israel at this time. You have things that overwhelm us. Things that create a sense of hopelessness in our hearts. Times in which we feel defeated. We're about to embark wonderfully on another political season. You may have already had your fill. You may be dreading what is the next pandemic that's gonna hit the world in which we live you become fearful. Or perhaps you have a doctor's appointment this week. And you're concerned about what they're going to say. Perhaps there's things going on in your family that make you feel that they're just things outside of your control. You may be facing individuals, whether they be in your family, people that you work with, people in your neighborhood that need to know Christ. But there's something there that just Because of a lack of confidence in what you have in the Lord,
1: it's hard for you to share that with someone else. And perhaps you're tempted to go pull out the DVD
0: with A Wonderful Life and and be made to feel better with this feel good story. Or perhaps you want to put on a certain
1: selection of music that makes you feel better. Or kind of helps take you away out of the elements.
0: Sometimes we need stories. And the world in which we live would take the story that we have here before us in 1 Samuel chapter 17 and run with it. They love the story of an underdog. As a matter of fact, we often will attribute so many things that we have in life to this passage of Scripture in a very distorted sort of way. If you're a sports fan, you're very familiar with the usage of this picture of David and Goliath. Long before Appalachian State went to the big house up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and beat the Wolverines in their own football stadium, there was a small school in Hawaii, Chaminade. If you're a college basketball fan, that will instantly bring memories back to you in which this small school of less than a thousand students in a very small division invited the University of Virginia to come and play basketball. There they had their seven foot four inch giant, Ralph Sampson, the player of the year on one of the best teams in the country. And this small school defeated them giving hope to all schools around, even Piedmont Bible College for which I played. And when we played Pensacola Christian's College, we beat them in our holiday tournament. Of course, we manufactured it by having them play as soon as they got off the bus on their long bus trip from Pensacola, Florida. But that was beside the point. We won nonetheless, one of our six victories of the year. I can tell many of you followed our team. But it's not just the sports world, it's the secular world as well. There's a New York Times best-selling author that wrote a book, David and Goliath. And you might think, wow! The New York Times best-seller list has got a book that's labeled David and Goliath. That must be a good one. Well, this, here's the review. New York Times best-selling author Malcolm Gladwell has explored the ways we understand and change our world. Now he looks at the complex and surprising ways the weak can defeat the strong, the small can match up against the giant, and how our goals, often culturally determined, can make a huge difference in our ultimate sense of success. Drawing upon examples from the world of business, sports, culture, cutting edge psychology, and an array of unforgettable characters around the world, David and Goliath is in many ways the most practical and
1: provocative book that he has ever written. Why? because it tells us how we can change our world. No, this passage is not about an underdog prevailing over the mighty opponent, but rather
0: a mighty God doing what he always does. It's a matter of just getting the perspective right. This is not about how we do anything except get out of the way and let the Lord do his work. This is about God. This is not about us. Only in the sense that is what we receive graciously and through the kindness of this God who has never been an underdog. Against a God who is sovereign over all things. The battle this morning we will find is the Lord. So let's look at the text this morning. Because of the length of the text and because of the limitations of my voice today, we are certainly not going to read every verse as found in chapter 17, which may bring joy to your hearts, thinking that this is probably going to be a short sermon. Silly, silly, silly. Hopefully it will be an appropriate Sermon for us to understand that again, the battle is the Lord's. First of all, let's begin in verse one. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. They were gathered at Soka, which belongs to Judah. And we're gonna pause right there. Hopefully that catches your attention. The Philistines, gathered their armies for battle and they were gathered, Ahsoka, which belongs to Judah.
1: Doesn't belong to the Philistines. This is not the land of Gath, this is Judah. And so the first
0: observation I would like for you to see is that in our passage of scripture, we're gonna see an element of apathy. The enemy had invaded Israel. The Philistines were getting themselves ready to fight the people who owned the land of Judah. Now, I'm not sure if the director of the Department of Homeland Security had lost track of what was going on here,
1: but the Philistines have no right to be in Judah, much less to array themselves for battle. So
0: in verse 2, Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter Philistines. But verse 3 does not say, then they started to fight and defeat the Philistines. What we're left here in the context of this passage of scripture is that the Philistines came into Judah ready to fight.
1: Israel put on their fighting clothes but we have no word of fighting. They were gathered here. Again, this is the land that we read
0: about in Joshua. There's a summary there given for the conquest of the promised land. Promised by whom? Promised by the Lord. The promise to whom? Israel. The Lord commanded Joshua to go into the promised land and to conquer it, to bring it under subjection because this land would be theirs. Not the Philistines, not the Amalekites, not the Amorites or any otherites. This was the land for the people of God. This was their promised land. But in chapter 11, verse 22, uh, we read there, with, uh, Joshua chapter 11, verse 22, there was none of the, of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain.
1: Now guess who the folks were that lived in Gath became? The Philistines. So people that were
0: not completely destroyed and annihilated as God commanded them to do in the land that God promised, would continually be a thorn in the side of the nation of Israel as they went forward. But there was a sense of apathy here in which they were not ready to defend their land. They weren't
1: ready to send these enemies back to where they belong. They just suited up. I'm not sure if they
0: just thought if they looked the part that the Philistines would be intimidated. Oh, so they are going to come out and fight. But there was no battle going on here. There were just two armies that were encamped against one another, and there they stayed.
1: And to some degree, I think that this could be seen as one of the failures of Saul. Saul's failure
0: resulted in Israel's vulnerability, and we see it here, to some degree, I think, in apathy. But Saul's failure did not just simply result in their vulnerability and apathy, but
1: is also seen in fear. As we go on and look, verse 4, then a champion
0: came from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Then we have a long description
1: here of his weighty, and I mean some serious weighty armor. This huge man was carrying a large amount of
0: protection. And in verse 8, we see he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistines and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then he will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said again, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together.
1: And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they, not the Israelites, Not the armies of the Israelites, not the citizens
0: of Israel, but they, including
1: Saul, was dismayed and greatly afraid. So Saul hears this. Saul. Presumably, if we were to go back a few
0: chapters, we would think Saul, well, well, he would be the champion of Israel. If Goliath is saying, hey, I'm the champion. Send out your champion. Well, we would expect to see who? This tall, handsome, strongly, kingly looking man, Saul.
1: But where's Saul? He's afraid. He's fearful. This is not the Saul that we seen back in chapter 11 of
0: 1 Samuel. So they told Saul the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, and when he heard these words, his anger was greatly kindled, and he went on to lead
1: Israel into victory. This is a Saul upon whom the Spirit of God had left.
0: And he, along with the nation that he supposedly led, is afraid. Sure, Goliath was well
1: armored. Sure, he continued to verbally defy the ranks of Israel. And when we focus on man, when we focus on King Saul, we can understand he's afraid. So, Saul's failure results in Israel's vulnerability,
0: not just simply in an apathy in which they don't actively defend their country, and not even in just simply the fear. But there's also a
1: hesitance, a hesitance that we see in verse 16. The Philistine came forward
0: morning and evening for 40 days. <laughs> for 40 days he did this what are you waiting on guys are you going to fight or not okay you're dressed up you're you're in camp you've even got David as a servant we'll talk about here in just a second bringing you your care packages and making sure you got what you need and and food and and and
1: everything but but for 40 days you're letting this go on It's as if they they understood that they had a responsibility as an army to fight, but they didn't. Again, this is not the Saul that we saw back in chapter 11. This is not even the Saul we saw back in chapter 14. This isn't the Saul that went through and, and just took care of the Amalekites. Now again, granted,
0: Saul had some great assistance from his son, Jonathan, right? And even when he did win, he just messed up royally by not doing exactly what God told him to do and then doing things
1: that God told him not to do. And so we see the results of what
0: happens, particularly in this situation, with a bad leader. It develops apathy among the people. It develops fear and it, and it festers
1: throughout all the land. And then there's a hesitance to act when called upon. So what I'd like for us to do now, having looked at Saul's failures, look at David's
0: faith. Now we've already been introduced to David in 1 Samuel. We've already been told that through Samuel, David has, has been named the next king of Israel. Now, this hasn't been made public. He hasn't taken the throne yet. But Samuel has already anointed king, uh, David to be king of Israel. But here, we have David, as it were, reintroduced to us in verse 12. But notice, first of all, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah. So this land that the Philistines have come in and invaded with no action taken on the Israelites' part to defend it, David is, is from there. He, he's, he's, that, that's his home. He's a
1: local. And so we're introduced to him, but he's also the son of Jesse. Jesse was an old man.
0: He had, he had some sons that we've already been introduced to earlier and the three oldest ones were there on the battle line. David was the youngest, so David was the one who was given to take care of the sheep, which seems like an insignificant job, but as we'll find out later, it was a great job for preparing him. But David went back and forth in verse 15, from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. Now in verse 20, On one of these occasions, David arose early in the morning and left the flock with the keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. (laughs) That's all they were doing. They were just making a bunch of racket. They weren't fighting. They were just shouting. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, behold, the champion Goliath, here he comes again. He spoke the same words, and this time, verse 23 says that David heard them. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him, and again, they were greatly afraid. Now, the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's coming up? Surely he's coming up to defy Israel, and it would be that the king will enrich the man who who kills him with great riches and give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. David spoke to the men who were standing by them, saying, What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? I like the way this is sounding. Here's a young shepherd boy, maybe at this point, maybe to the point of 20 years old, who instead of being afraid when Goliath makes his pronouncement and his challenge. Now, let me get this right. The person who actually kills this man is going to get something from the king? This man who who actually would would taunt the armies of living God? You're gonna get something for that? It's almost as if David assumed, well, that should, what we, that's what we should be doing anyway. Why should there be some great reward to defeat the enemy of God? And so they reminded in
1: verse 27 exactly what would happen. Now, verse 28, David's brother, Wasn't really crazy about this. Questioned his motive.
0: He says, Eliab, his oldest brother, heard, and he spoke to the men, and Eliab's answer burned against David and said, Why have you come down? Why have you come and left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and your wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. You just want to see what's going on. Well, his older brother should have told him there wasn't really much going on except for us running from this guy who keeps shouting at us.
1: But David was like, what have I done now? Was it not just a question? Then he turned away from
0: the others, another and said the same thing, and the people answered the same thing as before.
1: When the words which David spoke were heard, he got to Saul. and he sent for him. So in verse 32, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail
0: on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And so Saul, just as David's older brother questioned, now Saul, now it's not just a question of motive for why are
1: you here. Now it's a question, there's no way you can do this. And so David goes and gives him an example of, of why he shouldn't be afraid. For he says in verse 35, I
0: went, I'm went. i sorry, you're, in verse 34, David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this circumcised Philistine will be like... One of them, since he's taunted the armies of the living God. Now, if it was a period right there and that was all that David said, then perhaps someone would have a right to write a book. David and Goliath has nothing to do about God. Maybe we'd be right to simply just attribute this sort of uh, figure or this imagery to sports. But this is where we understand that this is about God. For David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David understood that while he was the one fighting the lion, or the lion and the bear, it was the Lord who delivered him. David wasn't saying, well, Saul, you just don't understand how strong I am. You just don't understand how I've become, you know, one of these survivalists as being a shepherd. I, I, know how, I know the tricks and the trade. I'm, I'm, I can manipulate things and I can, you know, I can figure things out. No, David said, the Lord did it. And the Lord will do this with Goliath. It's the same Lord. It has nothing to do with who the enemy is. Doesn't matter if it's a lion, a bear or a giant or a whole army, that's irrelevant. The point is the battle is the Lord's. So in David's faith, while in Israel there was apathy, in David's faith we see interest. He was from Judah. He was interested in And in, in why are we still standing here? Why is that army not defeated yet? We see courage in David because he had walked with the Lord before this fight. In his everyday experience, he had seen the Lord deliver him from real danger.
1: And we also see in his faith, not hesitancy, but engagement. Saul told him, well, well, we'll go on then.
0: <laughs> it wasn't. You know, David, you're right. And as king of Israel, I should go out there with the Lord and fight this so that my people can see their leader leading as opposed to cowering in fear. But no, Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. Now, interestingly enough, what does Saul immediately start to do well i said that i hope the lord goes with you but i also want you to go with my armor i want you to go with my weapons and here david this young man's trying to fit this you know apparatus on he's like this doesn't fit i haven't had a chance to do anything in it just leave it And so, what he did, he took them off, verse 39, and in verse 40, he took his stick in his hand, chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook, and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had even in his pouch. Sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield-bearer in front of him. And the Philistine looked and saw David. He disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you would come with me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field.
1: And this was the point where David should have been like the army and Saul, and ran away.
0: David's young. David's smaller. David's less equipped. But David said to Philistine in verse 45, you come to me with a sword,
1: a spear, and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord. I come to you in the
0: name of Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the God of the army of Israel, whom you have taunted this day, the Lord will deliver you up into my hands and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. Now I will give you the dead bodies of the army, of the Philistines this day to the birds and of the sky and of the beasts of the field, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Not that there's some flamboyant charismatic young man who came from the flock of his father's sheep
1: as an underdog to defeat this giant of the Philistines. But I come to you so that all the earth will know that in Israel there's a God. The true God. The one and only God,
0: and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. He struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. But at least not yet. Because David runs over and he takes out the Philistine's sword, Draws it from its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it.
1: When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Because the Lord had delivered this giant into their hands. Not what um, Entrepreneurial Magazine,
0: Inc., period there was an article on their website I thought was interesting the title is pretty catchy because it says three things people get wrong about David and Goliath (laughs) all right that that sounds like my kind of article because there's a lot of things that people get wrong about David and Goliath however the next time you hear about a David and Goliath story they say don't think of an underdog hey sounds even better unfortunately it goes on to say think of of a confident competitor who is more than happy to be underestimated. Because you see, as they go on to say, that Goliath probably really wasn't that threatening after all, because he was probably subject to this uh, physical ailment that happens in people that are really tall that causes them to have double vision. So, so Goliath probably couldn't even see David. David. And that Goliath proved himself to really be powerless because one, why would he need all that armor if he was so strong? And then with all of that armor, he would be so weighted down, he really couldn't fight that well. And then the final just clincher point number three,
1: David is a deadly shooter with the slingshot. That is just like our world, isn't it? Twist and
0: turn everything that they possibly can to miss the point. What's the point? The battle belongs to the
1: Lord. This is not about David's ability This is simply a reflection of David's
0: faith that allows us to see the most important thing that God is never the underdog. God is always on the winning side. He will always win. He has always won, even when we can't see it, when we can't fathom it, when we don't understand it,
1: when it doesn't seem like it's the truth. Please make no mistake. The battle belongs to the Lord. And I look forward to Pastor Tim bringing us through what
0: develops between this relationship with Saul and David.
1: What I'd like for us to do today as we close is hopefully find some practical relevance here for us because there's still a war going on. And we can't afford to ignore it. We can't be apathetic to it. However, as Paul
0: reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6 and 2 Corinthians chapter 10,
1: this fight isn't against flesh and blood. We're not fighting a nine foot human being. We're fighting against spiritual darkness. We're fighting against principalities. We're fighting against the God of this world. So when error enters into the church,
0: either locally, or corporately universally we're not just to stand around and watch it and wait it out when false ideology creeps into our life
1: whether through the education system or whether it be through the music that we listen to or whether it be the media that we watch We're not just to see if someone else is gonna step up to take care of that. When the tempter approaches, we can't afford to crouch in fear
0: and leave him to have dominion over our lives. When the flesh seeks its own, whether it be the lust of the eyes or the lust of the flesh or the pride of life,
1: Will we abandon our love for the world in efforts to destroy that?
0: Or are we strong in the Lord and the strength of his might like David? For you see, David, again, as we've been talking about a lot, is just simply pointing to a better king. And as great as the results of David's faith was there in the land of Judah, against the giant and the Philistines. is
1: incredible of a battle that he one-handedly was used to decide.
0: There's a greater victory that's provided for the one who would come from David. See, as we just celebrated during the Christmas season, sorry, Pastor Charlie, incarnation season, we rem- were reminded of the promise given to both Mary and Joseph that it would be the one who came from the
1: lineage of David, who would be given the throne to reign forever. From the root of Jesse, there would become a king.
0: That forever and ever, as we talked about in Revelation chapter chapter 5 this morning, will be the subject of worship and praise without end. This Jesus, our Christ, our Savior, is the one whom the writer of Hebrews talks about in chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He, speaking of Jesus, Likewise, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear and death were subject to lifelong slavery. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us
1: the victory through who? our Lord Jesus Christ. So while we may be encouraged
0: by the faith of David standing before a great giant, our faith is so much more secure when it is in the Savior who faced our greatest enemy,
1: death, and defeated it. So that when we look at the grave, there's no sting.
0: When we look at at death, there is no, no victory in the death. Where is your victory, death? Well, our victory is through our Lord Jesus
1: Christ. He has delivered us from our greatest enemy, and it doesn't stop there. Jesus
0: Christ also gives us the victory in our war, not just against death, but against our flesh. You see... We have to understand that just as Peter wrote in his first letter that we should live as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh
1: which wage against your soul. We're in a fight. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter seven, for
0: I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Does that sound like your life as a believer? I can tell you with great confidence, that's my testimony.
1: There's a war going on for my mind. Wretched man that I am. Sorry, Paul,
0: I know you thought you were the chief of sinners, but I'm taking over. It's me. I'm the wretched man. Who will deliver me from this body of death? (laughs) I hope you know the answer to this. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord.
1: When you're struggling with the flesh, when it doesn't seem like that fruit of the spirit is showing up as often as it ought,
0: when you feel yourself on the back side of the wilderness being tempted and tried.
1: When that which is in you that longs after the world that is perishing and is destructive. Who
0: will deliver you? Who will deliver me?
1: Our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God for that victory. And Christ also equips us for the warfare. I mentioned Ephesians chapter 6 just a minute ago.
0: He tells those in Ephesus as well as to us today. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You see, we can't Be apathetic. We can't think that Satan is not scheming against you. I cannot act as if Satan is not trying to ruin my life. I might show up with the good Christian clothes on, but if I'm not ready to fight, if I'm not ready to stand in the Lord strong, then those schemes are going to work on me. Those schemes are going to be successful against me. So I need to put on the full armor of God for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There are too many Christians who live their life apathetic and
1: indifferent to this truth. And they're either unproductive or they're fooling themselves, because there is an enemy that is to scheming.
0: scheming. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you'll be able to resist the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation